long. Should say woes for the hypocrites. I know that sounds exciting, but when you preach through books of the Bible, you don't get to skip the hard parts. You just have to deal with them and see what they say and pray that God uses them in our life. He put them there for a reason. This is one of those places. So we are in uh, the end of Matthew 23, actually sort of the middle and the end. It's a long passage. So we're going to read the passage as we go through it this morning. Uh, So let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Once again, you've brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. And we ask this morning that you would give us the grace to understand these hard words here, these sober and solemn and shocking words, the very words inspired by the Holy Spirit meant for the edification of your people. We ask this day that you would help us to see the truth of your word for our lives that we would respond to it by your grace, embrace it, confess our sins, flee to Christ, and be built up in him. Lead us not into temptation, O Lord. Deliver us from evil, and especially the evil spoken of in this passage. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I shared with you earlier, General Assembly is happening this week, and I couldn't help but wonder how this passage which is all about the the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, got scheduled for this week. It's probably not a coincidence. I remember once attending General Assembly a number of years ago, and uh, it was held at one of our larger churches, and a friend and I went out to Olive Garden uh, for dinner one night, And while driving back, we could see this great big church. It's overlooking the whole area. It has this huge steeple, and it's all lit up against the night sky. And it's impossible to to miss it. And we're driving towards it on the highway. My friend just says, you know how many guys here are lusting after that sight? And I didn't say anything, but I was thinking, well, I know one. It's a well-known secret that pastors love to compare themselves to each other. We all do it, and we all hate it. And we hate it because there's always someone somewhere who, who has it better than you do. Their church is bigger, it's growing faster, has more money, more people, a beautiful new building, and so on and so forth. Or you meet people who are way more godly than you are. They pray more than you do. They know the scripture better than you do. Their sermons are way better than yours are. Their bookstore, uh, the bookstore there will have their latest book. And in their downtime, they wrote a hymn. And we're going to have to sing it. You know, and you think you have maybe two or three spiritual gifts, and they have all of them. And as you meet these people, and truth be told, you just want to slap them. But you can't hit everyone, so it's just frustrating. So we should just stop, right? Uh, But we don't, and it's all so sad. I'll meet a whole bunch of other pastors this week, many of whom I'm already friends with on Facebook. The biggest group of friends on Facebook is other PCA pastors. But a lot of them I don't actually know all that well personally, 
And so a lot of them are going to ask, so, how's your church doing? But what they really want to know is, how many people? And they ask so they can compare and see if they're doing better or worse. And a number of years ago, I decided I just wasn't going to answer the question anymore. You know, I want that to sound spiritual, like I'm downplaying the numbers because they're really not that important, but mostly I'm just messing with them. So I'll answer, church is doing great, thanks for asking. And they'll lean in. And in a softer tone, they'll say, great, seeing a lot of growth? And I'll smile, say, yeah, a lot of growth, God is good. And they'll smile. They'll say, yes, he is. And then they'll lean in even more. And in an almost conspiratorial tone, they'll say, so, what kind of growth are you getting? And I'll keep smiling and reply, you know, all kinds, just like your church. And at some point, they realize I'm not giving them any numbers. And so eventually we'll just shake hands and say, hey, good to see you, and he'll go look us up online. <laughs> and then defriend me on Facebook. <laughs> you know, we so want to look good. We don't care if we're all that spiritual or not. We just want everyone to think we are. We know we're supposed to love Jesus, but mostly we want you to love me. And to one degree or another... We're all hypocrites. We're all Pharisees. And I'm chief among them. Perhaps you've heard that charge before, maybe from a friend uh, that you've invited to church. Or, I'm not going there. You know, church is full of hypocrites. And at one level, they're right. We are hypocrites. So are they. So they should come visit. They'll feel right at home. Don't say that. It's not nice. I mean, do as I, as I say, not as I do, chief Pharisee right here. But on another level, they're totally wrong. Because to be a hypocrite on the same level as these Pharisees in Jesus' day were, would mean that you're not a Christian at all. Because at some deep level, hypocrisy will eventually turn you from Christ, exalt self, over Christ, and ultimately hypocrisy pushes you into a form of denying Christ. And so this level of pharisaical hypocrisy has dangerous spiritual consequences, and we need to guard against it, and that's what our passage today is actually all about. We've been working through the Gospel of Matthew for some time uh, now, and God has a word here that it's timely and helpful as we turn to Matthew 23. And I want to remind you of several things as we come to this passage. You remember at the beginning of Matthew 23, as uh, uh, Reverend Dorse preached last week, Jesus is speaking in the last few days of his public ministry uh, before he is crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. So these final words are very important. We're basically coming up to the, the last words uh, of Jesus here. So these next several chapters are big topics. And uh, in the last chapter, in Matthew 22, he spent a good deal of time uh, sort of discussing and debating a range of theological issues with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. And now 
He's turning his attention to the crowds who are still in the temple. As far as we know, the scribes and Pharisees have left. They've moved to the back of the crowd. Uh, by and large, they're gone. There may still be a few uh, in the crowd. But Jesus is directing his focus uh, to the crowds themselves. And as he does so, he brings a withering critique against the ministry and lives of those who are the key spiritual leaders in Israel in his day. Now, I want you to understand, Jesus is not just waiting for them you know, to get out of earshot and then blasting them behind their backs. He has, throughout the gospel, spoken to them very frankly uh, throughout his whole ministry, uh, given them his assessment of their own hearts and their own ministry. And what Jesus is doing now is intended as a very important warning for his followers that they not fall prey to the same temptations to which the Pharisees and the scribes had fallen prey. And so his words are not simply the reflections of a guy who's just had enough and has lost his temper and he's just sort of flailing away, blasting in every direction because of his anger with this particular group. <coughs> not at all. These words are deliberate and calculated. And uh, we're going to see they're actually loving and gracious as well. So here, Jesus pronounces woes, sort of like curses, upon the religious leaders of his people who are being hypocritical, who are outwardly holy, but inwardly, they don't love God and they don't really care about the souls of God's people. And he specifically catalogs the sins that they have committed. And he delivers what is simultaneously a gracious response and a terrifying warning. So as we come face to face with some very harsh language, let's keep all that in mind and let's turn to Matthew 23, starting at verse 13. And we see Jesus pronouncing judgment on false love. False love, that should be the first blank in your outline. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So first thing we see, verse 13, uh, he says, you keep people from eternal fellowship with God and you refuse it yourselves. How? By opposing the gospel. The Pharisees and scribes not only have rejected Jesus themselves, but they're doing their dead level best to keep other people from embracing Jesus and to keep them from the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, the Lord will visit curses upon you because of this. And the sad thing is, there are ministers today who prevent people from coming into the kingdom by their false teaching. Dr. Ligon Duncan, who's the Chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary, writes about hearing the testimony of a young man who was preparing for the ministry. And uh, he had lived this life of gross sinfulness. And uh, he had gone to a wedding of a friend and while he was at the wedding, he heard the words of 1 Corinthians 13. And without any comment about it, God's word struck his heart, 
convicted him of his sin, showed him there's a greater reality than he had ever imagined, and he began this process of seeking God, simply by hearing the word of God read. And so he went to the minister of his home church. He hadn't been there in many years, but he goes to the minister of this church and says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be born again? This minister said, born again? You don't need to be born again. Don't get caught up in all that stuff. So the young man was really discouraged and uh, very confused. But in the providence of God, he came across the PCA minister named Bob Cargo. And he shared with him the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was redeemed. He was saved from his sin. And he went on uh, to attend RTS and become a minister. But the sad part of the story was there was a minister in the story who was standing in the way of the gospel. And Jesus is saying the curses of God fall upon men like that. Now you may notice there's no verse 14 in our text. It seems to be a later edition, a later manuscript, and so it's omitted from most of our Bibles today. You can probably find it in a footnote but it wasn't part of the original. It's not found in the oldest and best manuscripts. So we move on to verse 15. And there Jesus goes on to say, you make your converts into worse hypocrites than yourselves. See, the Pharisees are actually very evangelistic. Don't get the idea they didn't care about conversions. They did. They wanted lots of people converted, and they wanted them to be just like themselves. They were trying to make uh, them Pharisees. And so the Lord Jesus says, you know what? You go out and convert people. You make them twice as bad as you are. They get all of your worst tendencies. They're hypocritical. They're legalistic. They're unbelieving. They become lovers of appearing holy, but not lovers of God. And so he condemns them for this. Now I want you to see a very important truth in this text. And it's a truth that we need to appreciate. That the truly loving thing for a man of God is not to ignore soul-killing error, but to confront it and, if necessary, denounce it. Now, Jesus' words are strong. Even in our nonchalant world where we think we've heard everything and we've seen everything and we've been there and done that, but when we read uh, Jesus saying these kinds of things, it's shocking. We have to remember, these are actually the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not name-calling. He's not venting anger and frustration. His words are well-chosen. I think, actually, they're pastorally chosen for the sake of uh, his people. And so that's the very first thing I want you to see today. The truly loving thing for us is not to ignore error and hypocrisy, but to confront it and, if necessary, denounce it. It's always easier to try and pretend like it's not there because then you get less criticism. But it's actually not a kind thing, not a loving thing to do for people who've been deceived by error. The loving thing to do is show the deception and show them the truth. And Jesus is actually loving the Pharisees and the scribes enough to tell it like it is, to show them their own hearts and to call them to repentance. And that's what we see in this passage. So the first thing he calls them on is false love.
because their love for others is leading those others astray. But even more than that, he condemns them for false righteousness. False righteousness, starting at verse 16. This is a long passage. He says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that is made, the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Joy to the world. Jesus doesn't back down from having to deliver, so to speak, the bad news. He's very much a person who calls it like he sees it. And here we have most of the woes that Jesus pronounces. I'm not going to deal with them individually because they're all very similar. They all fall, sort of fall into this uh, general category of I'm holy, you're not. I'm righteous, you're not. My oaths are valid, yours aren't. I tithe, you don't. I'm ceremonially clean, you're not. And Jesus is calling them out on it. And let's be frank, this is a brutal denunciation of the most respected spiritual leaders in Israel in his day. This would have had a huge impact uh, on the crowd. I can hardly convey how the people in the crowds, the multitudes that day, would respond to Jesus' message. If they had heard Jesus before, they would have been familiar with the fact that Jesus is a man who calls it like it is. However, if this was the first time they were hearing Jesus, can you imagine someone without credentials from your approved seminary coming into your church and denouncing all of the most respected leaders as hypocrites? What would your reaction be? Well, surely this man is unloving, this man is unkind, he's going too far, he's saying mean and unkind things, surely he's wrong. But this is precisely what Jesus is doing. He's denouncing those religious leaders who held sway over the people of God. However, his denunciation 
is purely pastoral. He's not just venting. He's not just fed up and he's going to let him have it. Jesus is calculated and deliberate and ultimately loving in what he says in this passage. Seven times he pronounces woes on the scribes and the Pharisees. Seven times he calls them hypocrites. Four times he calls them blind. Once he calls them fools. Once he calls them the offspring of vipers. His words are indeed strong. But he's not engaging in name-calling. It is a calculated, spiritual confrontation. So what in the world is Jesus doing? Well, at least two things. First of all, he's showing them and us God's attitude towards hypocrisy. So the people would have thought these men were close to God. In fact, they had a saying at the time that if only two people go to heaven, surely one of them will be a Pharisee. And that's the people's estimation of these men. And Jesus is saying, I want you to know what God really thinks about the hypocrisy of these men. Don't be fooled. God is not mocked. He knows. He sees. He judges. They can't fool him, and neither can you. And Jesus is showing the people God's opinion of religious hypocrisy. See, people might be tempted to think, well, you know, God's allowed these men uh, to minister in the life of the kingdom of heaven. Maybe he doesn't know. You know, maybe somehow they fooled God. And Jesus is saying, I want you to know without a doubt that God knows exactly what these men are all about. And secondly, the Lord's offering another warning to the scribes and the Pharisees. His own disciples are going to preach the same message again to the scribes and the Pharisees after the resurrection and then again after Pentecost. And so the Lord is now once again warning these men to flee from their sins and to flee to him and believe the gospel. And in so denouncing them, he's actually telling them the things they need to know in order to be saved. Just as the prophets uh, in the Old Testament were studying kings in a Sunday school class, and every now and then the prophets show up and they confront these wicked kings in the days of Israel. In the same way, Christ is confronting wicked religious leaders. And he's doing it not because he hates them, but because he wants them to turn from their sins and be saved. Finally, he's telling these things to the scribes and Pharisees because he wants the crowd and his disciples to be warned that we too are susceptible to the same temptations to which they had fallen prey. Jesus is warning his people against this kind of religious gamesmanship. He doesn't want people to practice religion as if they're actors in a play. He wants people whose hearts from the inside out have been given over to him and who love him with all their heart and with all their soul, with all their strength and with all their mind. He's already told us that in, uh, in the last chapter. That's what we are to do. And he's saying if we don't do that, this is what it's going to look like. The love God and love others is directly related to this passage. If you don't love God and don't love others, he's probably talking to you. And so he's warning people against this superficial, external practice of religion, which leaders of Israel had fallen into. So let me say that 
by denouncing this hypocrisy and yet affirming the reality of God, affirming the reality of the teaching of the scriptures, affirming the reality of a saving relationship with God, Jesus isn't falling into the trap of making a shallow deduction that says because there's hypocrites in the church, Christianity is not true. Jesus Christ speaks more strongly about hypocrisy in the church than anybody else in the history of the world. But that does not lead him to say, therefore, Christianity is fake. He says, the presence of hypocrisy is a sign of evil in the human heart and of the deception of Satan, and you need to be extra aware of that. But don't you dare think it disproves the truth of my Father. We all run into folks who disappoint us from time to time. Jesus said we would. If we didn't, he wouldn't be telling the truth. Because he told us we're going to run into this. And we're going to run into it in the church. The last thing Paul, the Apostle Paul, told uh, the elders in Ephesus in Acts uh, 20 was that people from their own midst would rise up and devour the people of God like ravenous wolves. Jesus is saying, yes, hypocrisy exists in the church, but no, it does not disprove the truth of God or undercut the reality of a saving relationship with God. And that's so important for us to remember today. So first he calls them out on false love. And then he calls them out on false righteousness because their righteousness is totally external but absent on the inside. And he's not at all finished with them because he goes on and condemns them for false acceptance. False acceptance. We'll pick up at verse 29. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some of uh, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So literally an A to Z of all the murders and all the blood in the Bible. But it's also A, Abel, it's in Genesis, and Z, Zechariah, this particular account is at the end of Second Chronicles, which is the last book of Hebrew Bible. So it's also saying it's the beginning to the end of the Old Testament, beginning, beginning to end of Hebrew Bible. And he finishes up by saying, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So one more thing we see here in these verses, Jesus makes an incredibly gracious response in light of the wickedness of the Pharisees and the scribes, but at the same time he's issuing a terrifying warning he makes it clear that those who reject the gospel message, those who reject the gospel messengers, do so at their own eternal peril. 
What is Jesus' response to all the wickedness of the scribes and the Pharisees? He says, I'm going to send you. I send you. There's a claim for divinity hidden in here. I send you prophets. I send you wise men. I send you scribes. I'm going to send you my own disciples. And I'm doing it because I want you to turn from your sins. And you say that you would accept them. But let me tell you what you're going to do to them. You're going to persecute some of them. You're going to reject others. You're going to follow around and hound some of them and bind them and flog them. And you're going to kill and crucify some of them. And because you do that, God's judgment is going to fall on you. See what the Lord is saying to this generation, this generation of Jewish people standing before him? He's saying, God is about to bring a tremendous judgment. You must flee to me and to my gospel now, because the judgment is coming in your lifetime. See, this message transcends that particular challenge for that generation. We know at that time, within 30 years of Jesus' life, an event occurred in the history of Israel, the likes of which had never been seen. The land, the people, the nation of Israel was brought to an end. Jerusalem was destroyed. It was leveled. Utterly decimated. We also know that Jesus' warning is a warning for every generation. For all of us will stand before the throne of God. And we will stand before the throne of God wrapped in the love and righteousness of Christ. Or we will stand before it uh, wrapped in the filthy rags of our own righteousness and our own sad spiritual hypocrisy. The Lord desires the people who not only look outwardly holy, but who've been transformed by his grace because they have trusted in him alone for their salvation and by grace through faith they have been justified. And because they've been justified, the Spirit has continued to work in them, transforming them into the image of his Son. And we see here a picture of the heart of God. He doesn't delight in the destruction of sinners. He warns them. That's what's going on here. Massive, massive warning because he delights when they turn from their sin and flee to him for grace. And so we close here with words of lament and hope. Words of lament and hope. Verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as the hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So in these last few verses, we see three very powerful warnings to those who haven't repented of their sins. Verse 37, there's a warning about unbelief and about those who are rejecting the words of Christ. Verse 38, a warning about the immediate judgment that God's going to visit upon those who reject him, who don't believe. And verse 39, a warning about the final judgment. Very quickly, let's take a look. And I'll really focus on verse 38, because it's sort of this uh, unique verse, and it's easy to misunderstand. He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. Here we not only see the danger that many people who profess the name of God, profess to be the Lord's people, <clears throat> will actually reject his love. But when they reject him, they choose desolation. They'll forego Christ, forsake abundance, 
and choose desolation. And Jesus says, those who forego me. I know that sounds crazy, right? That anybody would, would uh, forsake abundance and choose desolation. But Jesus says, those who forego me, those who bypass me, those who are apathetic about me, those who reject me, those who reject my gospel, they forego abundance, they choose desolation. And he makes it clear in this passage that his departure means the loss of God's presence. When he says your house is being left to you desolate, well, surely speaking of the destruction that would soon uh, come against Israel and against Jerusalem by the Romans. Saying this is part of God's covenantal providential judgment against his people. But primarily the desolation that Jesus is speaking about is a loss of his presence. The absence caused by the unbelief of his people. Remember, it's the presence of God in the temple that makes the temple holy, a place that serves as a place of prayer, a place of intercession, a place of uh, mediation, a place of devotion. But without God's presence, it doesn't do any of that. It's just a building. So Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah is going to prove to be a turning point in their history. Christ's crucifixion and resurrection and ascension are the very stuff of salvation for those who believe in him. But the very same things, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension are condemnation and isolation for those who reject him. His crucifixion is their condemnation. His resurrection is their condemnation. His ascension means his presence is no longer with them. And Jesus is saying, you reject me, your house will be desolate. Those are strong words. But you can't leave them there. You have to ask yourself, is our house desolate? Does Christ dwell in our hearts by faith? Does he dwell in your heart by faith? Or have you rejected him? Are you apathetic about him? Is there something you love more than him? Or have you not trusted in him alone for salvation? Are you riddled with false love and false righteousness and false acceptance? Jesus is saying those, uh, to those who are gathered around him after this a week of passion, you will never again see me, hear me publicly proclaiming the gospel of salvation as the Messiah of Israel until you see me coming again on clouds of glory and everyone in heaven and earth will profess that I am indeed blessed and I am the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Don't forget, this is the last public message. We're at the beginning of the final sermon of the Lord Jesus Christ to the people of Israel. In his last words, he reminds them that now, today, is the day of salvation. And so we have to ask, are you spiritually mature? Or do you just want us to think you are? Are you a Pharisee? Probably. You need to repent. Do you love Jesus? Or do you really just want us to love you? Are you a hypocrite? Probably. You need to repent. Or are you an imperfect follower of Christ who sometimes acts like a Pharisee and sometimes acts like a hypocrite? Probably. 
you still need to repent. Remember, the delight of God the Father is found in sinners who repent and who run to him that we can uh, receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The need is great. The time is now. Run to him. Find his grace. Receive his mercy. After all, it's Father's Day. And he's your father. And he loves you. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. In this passage, we see your son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We know the only way in the saving fellowship with you is through Jesus Christ, through trusting in him alone as he is offered in the gospel, through saving faith in him, through trusting in the promises of the gospel, and as we trust in him alone, we find we're justified, accounted righteous because of his life and death and his finished work. Help us, O oh Lord, to embrace Jesus and to flee from our own self-righteousness. And as always, help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.